on this week's Devils in the Details. We're back, and it's been a while, so we're going to come to you with some of the questions that you've been asking us during this break, and hopefully give you a little bit more insight into what we think is likely to be happening at United in the longer term. All right, Case, Happy New Year. How have things been, and how do you feel to be back? Things have been pretty good, Aaron. Things have been all right. Um, happy to be back. Glad we're doing this again. Um, yeah, what, what about you? How have you been? Not too bad. I finally had a much-needed holiday, so I'm feeling a lot better than I was before Christmas. And, yeah, I'm kind of just a little bit more relaxed and ready to hopefully actually get uploading on a regular basis. I have time set aside now to be able to do this properly, at least for the foreseeable future. And I'm really looking forward to that. I also feel like the two of us need to blow off some steam about this team because frankly, the things going on are ridiculous and in massive quantity. So we're going to do a bit of a Q&A. We got a lot of questions when you put out today's Q&A request. And so we're going to answer as many of them as we can, because honestly, a lot of them were really good. Um, and we've tried to put them into different topics so that it still feels like a regular episode with some level of continuity, but also addresses many of the things that you guys have been thinking about and asking about, and some of the things that we want to talk about as well. So I'm going to start with the topic of wingers, because there's been a lot of talk about, I'd say, all four of United's main wingers from going into the season, one of whom has left the club, we'll start with perhaps the best performing winger this season, Alejandro Garnacho. And I'll be honest, I've missed a couple of the last few games. I don't really have a good idea to answer this question, but I'm hoping you might be able to give the audience some insight on this. Um, VXYQ339 asked, can you talk about Garnacho on the right wing? And is he a candidate or solution for that spot long term? Yeah, so he's been very good in the matches where he's played on the right wing. I'm not going to lie. I, I I really would not have advocated for this before it was tried, and it's worked out, honestly, far better than I ever would have expected. He just actually adds attacking thrust on that wing, which no one has done in so long. Um, predominantly drifts inside, so like again, this is a false right winger in a lot of ways. Um, but when he does, he can hit the byline and he, like when he does, he's pretty effective, which I think you can't say of the other, al- the alternatives at, at right wing. Um, beyond that, yeah, I, I don't think it's ridiculous to say, um, you have to get him into the team. I think like long-term, he's definitely a, a part of this team. He has a very high ceiling. These are the kind of players that you try to get your hands on and we have him in the squad. Um, so I don't think it's ridiculous, but I think for me, I'd still prefer him on the left wing going forward, uh, which is, I guess that's kind of the chalk answer, right? That's the, that's what you'd expect me to say. Um, and that is what I'm saying. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't really have a ton to add here, but I, my instinct is to say that I think 
this is sort of a temporary solution that deals with some of the immediate issues in his game and not necessarily the things I think he's going to struggle with longer term. Um, whereas I, I like, I think a lot of people have been talking about his composure in front of goal in particular from left wing and his ability to get high quality shots off his timing. And I think those things are very fixable. Whereas the things I'd be worried about is his like flat level impact, which I think is still likely to be higher at left wing where he can come in on his right foot, especially as a player who I think has the propensity to score a lot of goals. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think that that's sort of the the book on that. Awesome. So Garnacho becomes an option at right wing and United really need that because they've had a departure and perhaps some kind of decline or things not panning out the way we thought they would. We'll start with the departure. Sancho has left on loan to Dortmund, his former club. What are your thoughts on Sancho in general going back to Dortmund and this entire situation? Nobody actually asked about this, but I personally think it's a really interesting one and possibly the end of a really big saga that has taken up the last year or so and a lot of time on this podcast. Again, I really try to avoid commenting on things we don't know about, and we do not know what happened behind the scenes. Um, And based on what we do know, I will say I suspect there's a mental health aspect of this, um, which makes me even more, which makes me even more disinclined to comment on it. Um, Just because I, A, even, even if he is a public figure, I think it's none of my business, and B, I just don't know the details of it, so how am I meant to, to comment on it? Um, but to whatever extent we can talk about it, he never really lived up to what he was meant to be while he was here on the pitch. I do think it's a shame that he wasn't available this season. I do think he bears some of the blame for that based on the information that we have. Um, but I'll be honest, I I, I won't miss him. Um, and, and again, that's not me saying I, I have any... I don't harbor any negative. I don't harbor any ill will towards him, but I, I don't think if he'd come back into the side, he would have made a huge difference. And I think there are definitely question marks to be there. There are questions to be asked about his recruitment, and 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 because I do think to a certain extent there was a misidentification of talent in some respects. I very much agree with that, and I think I want to bring in the broader discussion about recruitment of this position after we talk about Anthony. But before we do. I'll say this, right? Like you, I don't really want to comment on what's happened this season. But prior to that, I would say United signed a player for, you know, a 70 million plus fee here. And nobody really scoffed at the fee in the public sphere. Everyone was kind of like, yeah, this is about right, given his production level, age, and the club he plays for. Um, including probably the two of us at the time. Um, and... I would say that it's a it's a failing on United's part to take a player from that level of fee and not be able to integrate them successfully into the squad really at all or into a productive player. But I think I am much lower on him as a player and as a prospect even not with notwithstanding the issues that have happened this season even if he 
uh, were fit and were playing based on what I saw from before that. Um, and I mean, we'll, we'll continue on this theme into Anthony, but you know, he just has not been a productive floor raising creator at Premier League level. Like if you look at the stats, he's created a lot of shots, but he's not really an impactful dribbler. He's not really retaining the ball with high proficiency. He retains the ball a lot with his passing, but he loses the ball a lot as a result of not being able to muscle off players. And then on top of that, he's not... um At Dortmund, there was an element of he was a very good player, but he was overperforming on his underlyings. And he's not doing that at Premier League level. And we've seen this a number of times now with Bundesliga players who have this big performance against underlyings at a young age in the Bundesliga and then move to another league. Just to be clear, when you're saying underlyings, you're saying expected goals and expected assists. Expected goals. Less so expected assists because that's dependent on how other players shoot. But I mean, I feel like for sure. that's even more concerning though, right? Like if you have a, a large delta between your expected assists and your assists, that generally has generally, and I've refuted this in the past based on co- co- like very specific caveats, but generally that means it has less to do with your own skill level. Um, which is a bigger concern, and he he was massively exceeding his expected assists. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's it's important to remember with these metrics, right, that both expected goals and expected assists are, to differing extents, a function of two things, right? It's well, more than two things, but two things that I want to isolate here. Um, one is the player's quality overall, and two is the extent to which the player is involved in an attacking team in a close-to-ideal way to get their strengths out. And I think at Dortmund, Sancho had a lot of very ideal circumstances to get a lot of output out of him. I also think he was playing in a league where output tends to be higher. I also think that, um, yeah, in general, you're not really in control of how your expected assists convert into assists. So, for example, you can look at a player like Holland and say he was way outperforming in the Bundesliga, and that hasn't affected him in the Premier League, but most of his overperformance was in finishing. Um, and then the more interesting discussion might be why Holland's finishing translates to the Premier League, but players like Sancho, Kai Havertz, Timo Werner have not translated. But- I mean, I feel like the simple answer in terms of like why you would be... First of all, all of those players, Havertz, Werner... Uh, Sancho did it in smaller sample sizes. Werner in particular, he was actually a, a career average finisher if you took the full breadth of his Bundesliga career. And then Havertz and Sancho just had a smaller sample of shots. Like, there was a lot more... You, you had a lot, a lot less certainty. Holland, by the time he came to the Premier League, he already had a sample of, like, I want to say 200 shots, which is a ton of shots. And over the, the full breadth of his career... He was statistically the greatest big chance finisher in the history of recorded, statistically recorded football, which is the last like 15 years. So you just had like, you just had way more, even like forgetting what are clear technical differences in the way they take their finishes. Like Holland is clearly the best finisher if you watch them play. The numbers also told you that. So like I, like I think there's, yeah. there's that element to it. I mean, I think there's enough. Despite the smaller sample sizes with some of these other moves, I think there's enough statistical evidence to suggest that there isn't nothing in this theory of players moving to the Premier League and getting worse on their performance against underlyings than they were in the Bundesliga specifically. Um, but also, I think you're very much right that, you know, Holland 
was overperforming by such a margin and in such a sample that it becomes a lot more difficult to refute. Um, yeah, I, I mean, say, I, I don't I'll want to take, dismiss like, the technical I, importance of this. Like, but. yeah, a there's that. There's the technical side of it, which is like there's clear differences in how they take their chances. Sure, but I also think like if you look at like Havertz's, like his Havertz his, was a very small sample. Like it's a yeah. really small sample. He just didn't shoot that much. Sancho also didn't shoot that much. Like, yeah, it's like Werner is a different question, but Werner actually wasn't an overperformer on expected goals during his career in Germany. So like, right. But he has become a serial underperformer right in the years since. Right. Which is where the, which is where the questions come in. Um, I mean, it, yeah, I think the theories that players finish different types of chances at different qualities is, it's certainly true to an fair. extent. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, point being as it, as it stands for Sancho, I think, there were a number of, I, I would say, many ways in which I perceived the game at the time Sancho arrived are things that, A, I think if I had watched more of Sancho, I would have been more wary of. And B, I think Sancho and, as well, Anthony, which who we're going to talk about next, um, influenced the way I now think about the game. Um, and they've, they've changed my opinion on a couple of different things. And so I'm going to, I'm going to segue into Spuds Royale, who asked, why were you so wrong on Anthony? Um, because I think it's a fair question and an interesting topic and very much related. And then we can tie these back together. I think the, the thing with Anthony is a few things. I think the main thing, and I, I wrote about this for Scouted Football probably six months ago, maybe. I don't remember exactly when the piece came out, but I wrote about, specifically the transition from Dutch football to English football and the importance of demonstrated explosiveness um, in choosing who you recruit, especially in the, in the context of wingers. Anthony just lacked explosiveness. And I think that's less apparent when you watch his career in Dutch football, but it's still there. And you can tell this based on how he commits the ball into open space Um he was capable of beating Dutch fullbacks on the dribble, but he, he would very rarely rarely do this on the strength of his ability to just hit the ball into space and then beat a defender to the ball in space, especially over in small spaces, right? Like hitting the ball four yards beyond a defender and beating a defender over a short space. He would be much more uh, inclined to do that over larger spaces, which, which makes sense because if you have a smaller... Uh, margin of, of a speed uh, advantage over a player that's going to bear out more over a longer distance, right? If I race Aaron 100 meters versus 10 meters, and Aaron is a certain amount faster, the margin, the distance between the two of us will be larger over 100 meters than it will over 10 meters, right? Um, that bears out on a football pitch as well, and you can use that insight to tell you something about how, about a, a winger's aptitude and ability to 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 beat other players on the dribble and I think that bears out in the case of Anthony. He was much more reliant on his technicality and his ex- exploitation of large spaces, which when you go to a team or go to a a league like the Premier League where defenders are more physical, spaces are more limited, that becomes a lot less effective. So I think that kind of explains the majority of his inability to beat players on the dribble, 
which is a big part of why he's not dynamic as a creative threat in the Premier League, right? But we already knew that by a year ago, right? And we were still talking about him in a positive light, which I think is sort of the next part of this, which I think is what you want to talk about. Yeah, so that's basically what I was going to say, right? I think we were not under the illusion for very long that Anthony would be a very proficient dribbler in the Premier League. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I don't remember us being. I mean, I I went back and and listened to a few of the podcasts that we released. First one, he came, then mid-season, then um, late this By mid-season, late last we definitely season. were not Certainly. Anthony as a dribbler. I, I would say basically our, our, our... First of all, I don't want to make this us defending our take on him because I think this is much more interesting in the context of like, how can you learn from this and how... What does this tell us about the game? Um, but I will say, just for posterity's sake, basically where I think we were on Anthony by mid to late last season was acceptable attacking output, mostly on the basis of what he provides in terms of ball security and just like technical proficiency in transition, supported by basically league average or slightly above league average underlines at right wing. Um, and what he was doing on the pitch, he actually had much more goal involvement last year in terms of like chance, getting on the end of chances more than anything else than he has this season. And then also just that he was a huge value added out of possession and that that had immense value to us. Um, how would you say things have changed since then and why? I think is the real. Yeah, so there's three aspects to this, I would say. The first is how the two of us were wrong, which I'll cover first. Um, or I mean, at least how I was wrong. I don't necessarily want to speak for you. I definitely think that I saw Anthony's technical level as much more consistently high at Premier League level than he has actually panned out to be. And by that, I, I really just mean the efficacy of his actions in possession. Um, in creative areas, I think technically he makes a lot of mistakes, um, particularly with the weighting of his passing in creative areas, which once you reach that area of the pitch, pretty much needs to be perfect in order for you to create a chance or a goal. And I think at Premier League level, there's probably less margin for error in that. Um, but I also think that, in general, if I'd watched a lot more of Antony, again, like Sancho, it's probably something that was relatively visible in the Eredivisie. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I mean, I think, again... Dutch football in general, there is just more space and defenders are... I would say less well-drilled, especially in low blocks. Um, And I mean, that's really, that's, that's it. That there, there is more space to play into and around, which means you have a larger margin for error. I think Anthony also played in one of the most, maybe, maybe the greatest side in, in Dutch football history, which is a pretty controversial statement, I think. But if you actually had like the Ajax of, you know, 2018 through 2021 play the Ajax of 1974, I think they'd probably dog walk them, which says more about modern football versus 1970s football than it does about the actual talent level of the players in those teams. But um, regardless, I digress. There were a lot of uh, environmental conditions that I think probably inflated what was happening around them. You've talked in the past about like Brighton, for example, their players all of them have a certain level of technicality. And when everybody has a certain level of technicality, you inflate the perception of the players around you's technicality because you play it to the right foot of the person next to you. And as a result, it makes it easier for them to play that through ball. And as a result, that through ball is weighted perfectly for them to in- 
to cross it as a result, which means the finish is easier and everybody looks better as a result. Um, I think that side is a good example of that. All of this is, to a certain extent, I think less relevant though, because like seven to eight months in, we were still pretty high on him. And I do think there's there's this, which is he's been, his output in terms of like creating chances, being involved in chance creation has fallen off a cliff this season. It has gotten significantly worse. Um, but I also think we were more willing in a functional team to excuse his lack of contribution going forward because we perceived like the, the change in United's out of possession approach and its efficacy to have been in part to his out of possession approach to, to his out of possession uh, contribution. Yeah. And so what you're saying leads into what I think is the second aspect of this, which is Anthony has a fallen off from last season and B um, I don't think we have a conclusive report on his ability to convert underlying such as expected goals and expected assists into goals and assists. Um, starting with the expected goals and expected assists, a lot of Anthony's attacking output in the Champions League and in the Eredivisie was contingent on his ability to, over a relatively large sample, uh, a lot of crosses and a lot of shots, overperform his expected goals and expected assists in an, in a particular region outside the box. Um, it's imagine like if Anthony's cutting in the area he's going to cut into. Now we already talked about the dribbling, which I think reduces the effectiveness with which he can cut into that area. So that already reduces the opportunities he's going to get in that area. But also I don't think his expected performance has panned out. He was way below his expected goals last season. I'm pretty sure he's also below this season, despite being way above it in past Eredivisie seasons and also in the yeah, Champions I'll just League. tell you the numbers. 96 shots in Premier League football, minus four on his expected goals. Um, so six point... Sorry, eight expected goals. He's got four non-penalty goals from those eight expected goals, which is brutal. However, 96 shots is just not that many shots. I know it probably sounds like a lot of shots to people, but in the scheme of like statistical significance, it's just not that many. Yeah, hence why I say it's inconclusive, because I think time could still prove that Anthony is... A fine, if not good, finisher. A lot of people have gone deep into his shooting technique, but I think it the the field in general. I'm not saying people can't see shooting technique and point out flaws, but it's rife with confirmation bias. I don't think it's yeah. ne- I don't think it's systemically proven at this point that he's an underperformer of XG. So I think he's been I think he's been um, unlucky in that respect. And then the other thing is his final third entries. He's taken a drop off this season in performances, which I think has changed the perception of how he performed last season. Last season, he played well and then missed a lot of shots in a lot of games. Um, And then this season, he's just played flat out poorly. And United have played flat out poorly, which reduces the amount of time he's able to spend in the final third even more. Pretty much every United player, except for, I think, Bruno and Garnacho, has seen a drop off in their attacking output. Um, In particular, you can see it in Rashford's numbers. I think a lot of people have made a lot about Rashford's form, and I don't think it's incorrect, but I also think that a lot of it is to do with United just being a lot worse and not giving these attacking players the platform they need to play well. Um, And so, yes, we were wrong about 
I think Anthony's technical execution in these areas, but I also think there are a lot of factors that have led to him getting worse this season, and then a lot of factors that have led to perceptions of him changing. Yeah, and I think I think what it ultimately comes down for comes down to for me is this. He clearly, when United are in possession, is not good enough to play for United. I still think he's a big value added out of possession. But as we've seen this season, when you don't have a coherent out out of possession approach, that basically starts to mean nothing. And then you have a player who's just not very good at anything. Um, in the scheme of in in the context of like winning you football matches, and as we've talked about many times on this podcast, I still think top end attacking output from your forwards is hugely important. And getting like last year, he was like a league average attacker. This season, he's been significantly worse than that. League average, you can like conv- you can talk yourself into if the side is otherwise coherent. Below league average in a side that isn't otherwise coherent is just a bad player. So, like, I'm not so much arguing that, like, he's changed as a player and as a result we've changed our opinions. I think more it's like the context has changed and it's made things, like, painfully clear that certain things are insufficient. Yeah, Um, I still think he is a league average or above average attacker in terms of value he would provide to a good... Yeah, I think he's probably league average. But, like, league average is just not good enough. Like, it's certainly not good enough for the fee paid. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think it's that simple. But, I mean, yeah, that would be, that was my third point, essentially, right? Which is where we never had the opinion that the fee paid was a good investment. Like, I think that we became the, like, opposite side of all of the people who did not like that that amount of money was paid for Anthony, and they thought he was awful, and as much as possible, we're going to try and be balanced and say, like, we thought he added value. And especially when other people are denying it, that's going to be a topic on the podcast. Like, we disagree with what the general public is saying about this. And it doesn't really think that it doesn't really mean that, like, we think Anthony's amazing or that we're taking, like, a strong stance on this or really many things. It just means that the discourse gets polarized naturally over time. Um, and I think that's just something to be wary of when consuming content online is like over time, people become very polarized on these things and just you lose the like middle ground on opinions about this stuff. Um, and I think that's becoming irrelevant because I don't really think it's going to work out for Anthony at United, but yeah. Yeah. I, I think at this point he certainly has to go in the summer. Um, yeah. I just, I, I don't think he belongs to be honest. Um and that's that. And that's that's the life of a footballer, I guess. <laughs> All right. We've spent half an hour on the first topic. Um, and yeah, I think, as I alluded to, the fourth winger was Rashford. And I think we had a couple questions about Rashford. But I don't really want to spend a ton of time talking about him. I think the main reality is, yeah, to whatever extent he's low on confidence, that's incredibly important. Um, I also think that a lot of this output gap is just United playing a lot worse, which is going to make your attacking players worse. Um, I I also think you're seeing some level of regression. Like he overperformed on his underlyings a lot last season. He's not actually like a 30 goal a season player. Um, but that doesn't mean he's a bad player. It doesn't mean he's, you know, a 10 goal a season player like he's going to get this season at best maybe. But 
he's just not a 30 goal a season player consistently. Um, and he's not as bad as we've seen in this bad team. And let's go with the confidence. Like it's hard to talk about confidence because I don't want to make assumptions about how confident a player is, but when a player is out of form or out of confidence, or they're on a finishing slump, one thing that can help get them out of that slump is having a ton of chances, a ton of shots, a couple of easy goals. So when the whole team is playing well and one team and one player is playing badly, like look at a, a great example of this is Havertz at Arsenal this season. At some point in the season, Havertz started putting in goals. And I think a lot of that is just because they consistently, regardless of how he was playing, kept putting him in positions to play well and to score goals. And so as soon as he discovers or rediscovers whatever sense of ability he has or acclimatizes to his surroundings or whatever the issue is, it becomes much easier for him to play his way out of that slump. Whereas I don't think Rashford's really had the opportunity to do that because United have just been really bad. Yeah, and agree. I think a big part of it is that, and I think that's a true phenomenon about good teams put struggling players in a position to turn things around more frequently. Um, But I would also say there are like clear systemic issues with his game that that every once in a while just get put in the spotlight when we're struggling for instance like uh not a great decision maker not a very hard worker out of possession and i don't mean that as like a you know uh that's not a statement about marcus rashford the human being it's just the truth about how he plays on the pitch he he prioritizes being in advanced positions out of possession over working hard out of possession defensively. And that is a real trade-off. I think it's the wrong trade-off, but it is a real thing. Um, and then also, uh, I think there's there's limitations. I, I think he's a very good technician. I don't think he's a great technician, and I think that separates him from some of the great technicians that we've seen play at this club and play in the Premier League. And I think that's part of why I think he, he often gets put in these these comparisons that just simply aren't fair to him. Like, I just, I don't think he's one of the best players in the Premier League. I think he has moments where he looks like that. And that's fantastic because that's the kind of player he is. Like, he's he's very good. He's not great. Um, yeah, and, and that's, I, yeah. He's a very good player who's who's had a career at United that's been a very turbulent period. And so he's not going to have the clean legacy that you, Wayne Rooney has um, for two reasons. One, he's not as good a player as Wayne Rooney. But I think, two, more importantly, United have just been worse while he's been here. And he's been the best player for a lot of it. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, I think from there, and half an hour on wingers, we can begin to move to the next ca- the next topic which was midfield, and we got tons of questions about midfield. I mean, there's been a lot going on here, right? McTominay's been playing regularly this season when he wasn't last year. Casemiro had possibly the worst spell of his senior career and then got injured. Um, Kabi Mainu has become the superstar in the center of the park. Bruno isn't really scoring and assisting at the same rate as he was last season. And new arrivals, Mount and Amrabat, have had a number of challenges I'd say each of them quite different, um, but challenges nonetheless. And so I think this has left a lot of uncertainty about who actually forms United's best midfield. Um, Sean Taylor asks, if Casemiro recovers decent form, is him and Menu the obvious midfield pair? 
Ali Pietri, please correct me if I pronounce that wrong, asks, What benefits to the system do you think the team would realize from playing Mainu, Casemiro, and Bruno together in midfield? Solvang Carl asked something very similar. Um, KSIM United asked, Best utilization for Mainu, lone six, double pivot, or eight? And then Liam asked, Mainu has shown himself to be so capable already with his combination of press resistance, game state temperament, and more surprisingly given his age and stature, dual winning. Outside of injuries and mental factors, what things have you noted that he will need to improve on to become a central piece of our midfield for as long as he chooses? And then finally, Busby Scout asked, what would an ideal pivot partner for Mainu look like? What attributes are necessary? And so this is the part where I go, I don't really know what midfield United should be playing right now. I don't really know what the fitness situation of the players are. I don't really think any midfield will save United in this current tactical configuration. And so I think we should take a long-term lens case. Everyone's fit. A, what is your starting midfield? B, who would you keep from the current group of midfielders? And C, what do you think United need to look at bringing in in midfield? this summer or in the future? I'm going to avoid your first question, your first part of that question for as long as I can. The players I would keep are obviously Maynu, Bruno, Mount. I think those are super easy. I think then you can arbitrate to varying degrees about Hannibal, Amrabat, Ericsson to a certain extent, but I think I would probably sell Ericsson. And then I think Casemiro and, and McTominay are the players I, w- I would let go. Um, Casemiro, obviously, because of who he is, will have an opportunity to turn that around. Um, he very There's definitely a chance that he could. Um, a lot of these questions speculate as to Casemiro coming back into midfield as a starter. He certainly has hit much higher levels than he demonstrated earlier this season. However, I'm doubtful that he's going to recover his form. That's just a projection. I could be proven wrong. I'm happy to be proven wrong. Um, but as it stands right now, if this were the summer today, I would be selling him. I think McTominay kind of speaks for itself. Um, yeah, I think the rest of it speaks for itself. You just bought Mount. He's hardly played. I think he's very good. So I think that makes that one easy. Um, Hannibal seems... I'm kind of on the fringe with him. I would probably keep him, given that we've kept much worse players for much longer periods. Um if he was in a squad role, I wouldn't mind that. Um, Amrabat, we had, we got another question about Amrabat and about why he maybe hasn't kicked on here. Aaron and I, you, you, you and I talked about this before we came on. Ultimately, I think what this is, is I still think Amrabat is a good player. I think other players of similar quality to Amrabat have succeeded to a great extent at other large clubs. I think because he's not a great player, he's just a good player. You put him in a side, again, this is kind of like Rashford, except I think Rashford is a better player than Amrabat, obviously. You put him in a side that's dysfunctional. You don't let him play to his strengths. You make him a band-aid rather than a, a gear in a functioning engine. Um, and he's going to look really bad. And his weaknesses are going to be emphasized and his strengths are going to be underappreciated. And I think that's really where it is. And that's not me saying Amrabat has been good actually every time he's taken the pitch. I'm just saying I think this is... I think United have had a plethora of players over the last like five, six, seven, eight, ten years 
who have actually been good footballers put in the wrong context and been regarded in a way that I think is 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 not reflectant reflective of their the true quality. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's my take on who I would keep versus not keep. What was the third part of the question? I'm avoiding my my starting. Who would you? Still. What what types of players would you be looking to bring in? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think if you look, if you take what I think is the obvious starting midfield right now, which is Manu Mount uh, Bruno. I think the first thing is you need physicality because that is not a very physical midfield. You need height. Um, you need uh, more technicality. <laughs> like, like I don't think that's an excuse to just use McTominay or Casemiro. Um, and again, I know we've talked ad nauseum about Casemiro's weird combination of technicality and, and lack thereof. Um, but ultimately, I think... The third midfielder in this midfield still needs to be able to receive the ball, turn on the ball, pass the ball, do all of those things that we've lamented the United's midfielders not being able to do for a long time, um, while also being at least capable at set pieces, um, capable of winning duels. Um, but I'm less worried about ground duels because I think Maynu has shown himself to be very good in ground duels. Uh, so yeah, you're kind of looking for an all-rounder. The the luxury is because you have Maynu, I think the all-rounder doesn't have to be the doesn't have to have an emphasis on carrying the ball out of deep areas, um carrying the ball out of pressure. So it gives you a little bit more flexibility, which I think kind of leads you into something you've been wanting to talk about. Um yeah, I half agree. Um I'll I'll start from the start and try to pick up on a couple things that I either want to add or emphasize. Um, firstly, yeah, I agree. I'd pick my new Mount Bruno uh, as the starting three at this exact point. And I agree with the potential weaknesses that you highlighted in that group. Um, I agree wholeheartedly on Amrabat. I think that when he came in, our relative positivity was based on, you know, things that we thought he'd add to the midfield that specifically address issues that weren't currently uh, addressed in the midfield before Mainu emerged and um, and when Casemiro was the main starting defensive midfielder. Um, and I, I think to a large extent, he has shown that he could be good at that at Premier League level, the same way he was in Serie A. But instead, what's been exposed is his, you know, athleticism, which we said was a variable, um, a little bit of his lack of, like, floor-raising defensive impact and floor-raising attacking impact, which have been the two things that the midfielders have been kind of latched onto for this season in light of a lack of ability to play through opposition. Um, and so I think in a better setup, Amrabat could be good, but I'm 50-50 on keeping him, partially because he's 28, and I think United are headed in a slightly different direction now than they were in the summer. Um, but then on the other hand, because if mine is going to be the starting defensive midfielder, I actually think Amrabat could be a decent backup, so there might be an argument to actually get him. As for Casemiro, there's a couple issues. I think the issues we've highlighted a lot this season are the defensive mistakes that he's been making. Um, I have some level of belief that he could turn around his form defensively, but I'm not sure I particularly am interested in seeing him play anyways for a few reasons. Number one is... I think one thing that I sort of have mentioned... 
or I sort of mentioned in parts last season was the fact that um, I kind of ignored it because I think they were two of United's three or four best players last season. But Casemiro and Bruno is two players out of your midfield three that are not good in deep areas, not press resistant on the ball. Um, And I think this season it has become a lot clearer to me that that kind of setup creates a number of issues in the team. Um, when Casemiro was at Real Madrid, I think to some extent, I think they paid for his lack of ability on the ball more than people realize because of how many Champions Leagues they won. Um, I think they were not as dominant in domestic competition as one might expect for a squad of that quality overall. Secondly, I think Casemiro was covered for by Kroos and Modric in specific situations in a way that you cannot do in a midfield that has Bruno Fernandes in it. Because Bruno's not press resistant and as commanding in possession as those two players or anywhere near. Um, Like, I mean, those are obviously two all-time greats, but that's not even a strength of Bruno's game at all. Um, And so I don't think you can cover for him the same way Real Madrid did in that setup. And then it and then it comes down to this idea of like, would I choose to keep Casemiro or Bruno in the starting midfield? And for me, the answer is easy. I think Bruno Fernandez is United's best player. Um, and so, the reason why I lead off with this is because I think then what you get into the position of saying is Casemiro is thirty two or thirty three. Um, he's on really high wages, and I'm not confident that even if he fixes his defensive issues, that he should start for this team next season. And so, therefore, I would sell him. And then Amrabat becomes marginal. I think long term, I'm not sure I would have Medjbri as like a key player in the midfield, but key player certainly not. No, but I I just mean like as the sixth midfielder, it would not be the end of the world. And I think, yeah, like I think he has some nice his his some nice attributes, and he he comes on and works hard, which is more than like I don't know. I I think he can be kind of be like a high end uh, like a. a a more technical, less plus physical Fred. I don't want to waste a ton of time on this, but yeah, I mean, I think what you get here is, I mean, we talk about how Brighton have a, like a set of qualities that every player should have. And I think Medjbri adds the qualities that I think if I were in charge or had some level of influence on United's recruitment, I would be trying to instill in every single player at United. And on that basis, I think it would be a little bit silly to just like let go of a player who is one of not many who have that skill set. Um, I think he's useful late in matches to waste time. Like you said, I think he works really hard. Press resistance. I just don't think his overall quality is that high. Like I don't think the, his passing game is that great. I don't think his final third game is anything really. I don't think his defensive game outside ability in the press and covering ground is really all that much either. Um, so I don't really think he's at the level to play for United, but I don't think I would necessarily sell him yet. Um, it would have to reach a certain, I I don't think we're at the point where I would ideally sell him. Um, and then, yeah, I'd keep the other three. Um, and then that kind of influences where I'm not sure. I'm less certain about the, you know, physicality versus technicality trade-off of the midfielders that should come in, um, with Maynou Mount and Bruno. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that you need, physicality in there because i think there are certain matches i don't know if it's proven but i think there are certain matches where you might be overrun with that midfield um and then yeah, I, th- I think i think i think you definitely don't 
I, I, I wouldn't go... I think in an ideal world, if you're trying to build the ideal team, that's not the midfield. That's not what the midfield looks like. Yeah. However, I would be very wary of signing another physical midfielder who is not very, very good on the ball. Yeah, agreed. Um, agreed on that for I sure. Think, I think there are these ideas that you can get a player who is merely press resistant and not actually progressive or able to carry through pressure. Just they don't give the ball away under pressure. And then they're a dual monster and that's going to fix United. And I think that's the type of thinking that will lead to similar issues because what's going to start happening is teams will man mark Minu and force that guy to become the main player and build up. And then we'll be back to square one. Um, and that's where I think, honestly, teams like Arsenal fall a little bit short of Liverpool and City this season. I think that they compromised a little bit on build up, like ability to actually penetrate centrally by breaking pressure with players on the carry and with line breaking passing through central areas um, in the signings they've made. Um, and I just think that is such an important skill that I would not, I, I just, I would not compromise on at all. Um, I think the ideal player that comes to mind would have been Moises Caicedo last summer. Like, I think that would be absolutely perfect for what United currently need. Um, it's a bit short and I also think he's not a super progressive passer, but I, I hear you. I, I wanted Kaiseido very badly, and I still think he would make this team a lot better. He's not the most, and he hasn't exactly kicked on at Chelsea. But I think he, I think largely, actually, from what I've seen, I think I personally think he's been good. Yeah, in the matches I've seen, I think he's been good. I agree. Um, yeah, I really like him, and I think that's what you're getting there is a player who is pretty much 90th plus percentile defensively and athletically, and in duels at at Premier League level. And then a lot of the press resistance. But I, if I was compromising on that, I would compromise on the physicality, not on the in-possession ability. I would not go lower than that in terms of the player's ability on the ball. And that's where I get reluctant with rumors like Amadou Onana. It's not that I think he's bad on the ball. It's that I think United need a player who is incredible on the ball in order to differentiate themselves from the current crop of teams that they want to be competing with. Um, and, I, and I don't think he brings that. Yeah, I hear that. So kind of, I want to keep us here for a second. We got another question from Daniel N. Walters, which was how to solve a problem like Bruno. Presuming Mount Hannibal, Mount slash Hannibal are not an upgrade at number 10. What are your thoughts on us exploring alternatives in the market? We know how good Bruno can be, but also his limitations. God forbid we actually try and upgrade on him. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I have my own, but I'll share them after yours. Um, I think there's two separate debates. There's the, is Bruno good enough to lead a title-winning team? And then there's, what do United do with Bruno right now? Um, so for the first question, my answer is, I don't know. We've never really seen it. I don't really have a clear idea. Um, we talk a lot about how you cannot carry passengers in possession, uh, players who don't follow the rules of the team, and how you cannot carry, um, you know, players who are in general a liability under pressure compared to some of the other top teams. But then we also talk a lot about how elite attacking quality wins matches and leagues. 
And Bruno is the closest thing United have to that. So I'm conflicted as to what would happen if United ever reached a level where they were challenging for the Premier League, whether Bruno would become a problem or not. That being said, right now, the level United are at, I think means that you can't even think about dropping Bruno. Um, he is essential to every single morsel of attacking output that this team has. And I think the only player that compares favorably with rival teams, uh, equivalent players in, in some yeah. aspect, like I'm not saying that he's an outright better player for every system than the players I'm about to list. I mean, I won't even go on a list. I think he's the second most productive number 10 in the Premier League. And the one number 10 who's better than him, more productive than him, isn't fit for half the season most of the time. So I think you're going to find it, A, really hard to get a player who actually gives you the differential that Bruno gives you. And B, I don't think United are good enough yet that that's what you should be thinking about doing if you have budget. That being said, I can see how the last five to 10 minutes of discussion could illustrate that you know, this is something that could create ta- that is creating tactical issues in the team now. I just think you have to deal with it because he is as good as he is. And then when you get to a point where you have an opportunity to fix that, maybe you take it. But right now you have five other holes in the team that are way more important. Yeah, I, I also think, I mean, this is something that I waffle on a lot. There's definitely been moments during Bruno's United career where I've thought it would be better if somebody else was playing that position. However, ultimately, I think, A, to your point, he is the whole attack right now. And I think people don't appreciate exactly how incredible he has been even this season. Like, I think he's been very good this season. He's, he's been, been United's responsible best player for, like, the whole attack. Like, <laughs> for five years. Like, for five since years, he's been United's best player. The like, day Pogba left, he has been United's best player on paper. Yeah, true. And since the okay, day true. he joined, he has been United's best player on the pitch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because he's actually been on the pitch consistently. Um, yeah, I don't... It's, it's, it's obviously tempting in concept to be romanced by the idea of a Bruno list United because it sounds more aesthetic, but I think ultimately that's really all it is. I I think Bruno is a fantastic footballer that is very difficult to replace and he is worth his deficiencies. Um, And I don't think how good he is, is exaggerated. I think if anything, it is underappreciated. And I say this as somebody who does not love the way he plays and somebody who tears his hair out at some of the decisions he makes on the pitch. He's just that good. Like, I do think it's it's true. I think if you're looking at a United team that's trying to get top four, and you're looking at what's preventing this United team from getting top four this season, Bruno doesn't even make, like, the top ten. I he really doesn't think even make, like, like, the top a, 50, dude. Like, yeah, like there are, yeah. I can name so many tactical and personnel issues that have nothing to do with him before I get anywhere near talking about him. Um, yeah, I just, I don't think it's even on the menu. So if you're worried about not having press resistance in one player in your midfield, I think that's a valid concern. But I think if the I think at this point, the other things that Bruno's bringing just make it impossible for me to. I think you basically just have to firm it and load as much press resistance and physicality into two midfielders as you can, which you, you should can. be doing yeah. anyways. By the way, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Anyway, yeah. So I think it's that simple. I, I, I don't know that I have that much more to say about midfield. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I agree. you end up buying at least one. And I think it becomes, 
And this is also partially why I'm 50-50 on Amrabat, even though I think he is good enough to contribute meaningfully for United, um, is because I think if you have to buy one, it becomes quite difficult. Whereas if you buy two, it opens up a number of possibilities. You can get one who leans physical and then one who leans a little more technical. Um, if you have to make that, if you have to make that call, you, you, it gives you more options to play with and you can also get younger in the process and begin to think about, I mean, Bruno is 30 this year. So begin to think about what happens when he inevitably can't play every match anymore. Like he has been the last two or three years. So yeah, I, it's interesting to see what happens, but I think basically United have to get better at every aspect of deep midfield play in one summer and in one or two purchases. And it's not for a lack of talent that that's currently in the squad. It's just the way the team is arranged and the level of the competition that United are playing against in this league. So are you saying just to like kind of clear things up? Are you saying United must improve in a number of areas, including passing, creating (laughs) chances and defending? Did you actually just Google that? (laughs) I had to pull up the tweet from like 2013. <laughs> All right. I think those were the two main topics people asked about. So I think now we can kind of go into like a rapid fire of questions and then maybe a no details and we'll wrap this up. Um, I'll start with at Conrad Muniz, who is my cousin, who said, and this is kind of an interesting segue from the last question because we were just talking a lot about midfield, but he asked, what position do United need to improve the most in? Right wing is my answer. Garnacho notwithstanding. Interesting. Yeah, it really depends on your perspective. I think right wing is the biggest lever, so I'll Can also I say, say manager? Right wing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um yes. Yes you can. That's my actual answer then. But I, I would, then I would say right wing, and if not right wing, maybe center mid central midfield. I would still get another midfielder. Um I mean, we're playing, we're running out McTominay, man. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but we could also simply choose not to, so. We could, but the, I mean, I still think, I still think my answer is essential midfield. Because I, I think, I, I personally think a Maynou Mount Bruno midfield is not one that I want to run 38 matches with, personally. If you got um, a second Maynou in this team, I think it would actually cover up a lot of the deficiencies that are occurring, yeah, even crazy. though the system you, is you bad. Wouldn't, you wouldn't have the other Maynou clearing the ball into uh, original Maynou's chest, and then Maynou having to chase after it. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that clip from the... Did, did you, did you did. watch... You didn't watch the... Yeah, okay. I missed the match, but I saw the clip. No, I mean, I, okay. I, I really think, like... Another press-resistant midfielder would be the quickest way to make this team look better, but I think right wing would be the quickest lever to get more points. Because if United got an elite right winger, an elite member of the front three, they could literally get top four being this dysfunctional. Like, I don't think they would, but I think they would be back in the race. It would be within the realm of possibilities. Whereas right now, it's, it's over. They're not getting top four. So... Yeah, And that's just simply because even when you play badly, and I know I've, I've said a lot about how you need to get attackers into the final third to score, but even when you're that bad, Mo Salah wins games. Like, yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. Now, I mean, the counter-argument could be that there is no Mo Salah on the market, and there are probably central midfielders on the market, but 
I think you could. I, I don't know. I think a lot of good. I'll bet you Barcelona would give you Rafinha, and I think Rafinha would make you a lot better. We talked about this the other day. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd pay a lot. Of Rafinha's money not for my Rafinha, guy. No, but... no, no, no. But I'm but I'm making the point that like there is a guy out there who could do exactly that. Yeah, um, I mean Rafinha would be United's best or second, second best, best player, player and yeah. best forward. So yeah. All right. Yep. Anywho, Barry D asks. In the recent past, Aaron has been lukewarm on Onana as a potential midfield signing, while Case has been critical of United's set pieces. Is it ever possible to be good at set pieces when our best lineup when fit includes Lissandro and three small midfielders? I mean, it depends on who your other players are. I, I First of all, I think my, my broader answer to this is yes, it is possible. Um, however, I think it is very hard if all three of your midfielders are small, which is why... I'm like not huge on the idea of Mount, Maynu, Bruno, and then, yeah, Lisandro. However, I will say you can have tall, like, for example, you could have Rasmus Hoyland, Luke Shaw, Harry Maguire, Diogo Dallo, Rashford. and then insert tall, right? Well, yeah, I think Rashford is kind of a, he's a bit goofy at set pieces, but like insert tall right winger. And then your team isn't short. Like, your team is, yeah, you're right. Rashford is tall, and my point is more about height than it is about strength and set pieces. Then your team isn't short. It's that your team is, if you're struggling at set pieces, it has a lot more to do with scheme than it does with height. Um, and you can make the argument, well, oh, a lot of those players aren't, like, heavy, and so they have a lot more trouble, like, throwing their body weight around, being physical in the air. Possibly true, but I think those two things aren't necessarily related to height. I'd say I'd guess that aerial ability is like the third most important factor in indirect set piece success. The first second. and second, I don't know in what order, but coaching and ability of set piece takers. Um, like I in think terms of, in terms of the the the, so you're talking about attacking set pieces then? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, in yeah, terms of defensive, I, I'd also argue that goalkeeper quality is probably up there as well. Um, but yeah, in attacking set pieces, like if you have an incredible set piece taker, that that can create massive differences at Premier League level, um, more so than any individual player in the air. Like I I don't know what the most uh, a set piece, uh, the most goal involvements from set pieces is in a single season, but I'm I'm willing to guess like most of the top five, most of the top twenty are set piece takers. Like Dimitri Payet, James oh, Ward yeah, Prowse certainly. come to mind. No, hundred percent. No, I, I yeah. think that's that's. I'll bet you it's all twenty of the top twenty. Um, and for um, what it's worth, I think United have very good set piece takers um, in the team. Yeah, I, honestly, I'm less concerned about the attacking set pieces, which I think, again, I just think we're not maximizing the coaching as I am with the defensive set pieces, which I think more is what this com- this question is about, right? Like, and I think that again is coaching. Like, I just think this is this is the most coachable part of the game. Like it is a it is a is a moment in the game where all the movement stops and you can place all eleven of your players exactly as you want to. Like, there's no reason not to be coaching this to like a a, a borderline like maniacal degree. Like you should be hyper. Like you should be micromanaging this aspect of the game. And any coach who's not doing that, or any like coaching staff that isn't doing that, is not maximizing their team. Not to, I'm very comfortable saying that. Not to invoke Arsenal twice in an episode, but they, if you look at their attacking figures over the last few seasons, 
They are not a good team from open play attack, but they are an absolutely exceptional team from set pieces. And that's a huge factor in how many yeah. points they've been able to rack up. Um, set pieces, I think, account for like a third of the goals in the game. I'm, I'm totally pulling that number out, but I'm pretty sure it's like 30%. Yeah. I think it um, depends on what you can of set pieces, but I mean, Rangnick said 30% famously um, at club level. I think that's right. I think that's right. But um, yeah. Um, anyway, we digress. Last point on this. I mean, I know you kind of probably rightfully pointed out that the main issue here is defensive set pieces. But... I mean, it's both. No, the issue is both. It's just like, I think attacking set pieces, you can talk more about individual brilliance. Whereas like, you're not going to have like an individually brilliant set piece defender. <laughs> like that's, that's just not how set piece defending works. Yeah. Well, but obviously think, individual quality matters. I think the differential is higher in attacking areas, as you point out. And, exactly. um, the interesting thing about Amadou Onana is that I don't actually think he's a difference maker in attacking set pieces at all, really. Um, he has two goals in his 41 nineties of Premier League football. And I'm not even sure that both of them were from the set piece were, were from set pieces. Um, yeah. I think I recall one of them and it's not. Yeah. This is not a player that's known for attacking the box despite his stature. He is dominant aerially, but I don't think that it's in an attacking set-piece context. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I think we need to move on from this topic because we've been talking about set-pieces for a while. Um, All right. Get, like, get, like, there are very talented and well-known set-piece coaches who have had huge effects on Premier League sides that are unemployed right now. At Tim Jason asks, how come United draw extremely few games? Two this season, eight last season, all competitions. I think there's something in this personally, but I'm going to let you go first. Yeah. Um, Okay, first of all, we've talked about this before. I don't know that I have a good explanation for why it happens. I will say it is a very good thing if you're a manager who wants to keep their job. Because draws are basically losses in a numerical sense. Um, I'm not talking about like effect on team morale. Obviously, a draw away at Anfield is very different from a draw at home to Luton Town. Um, But, yeah. There's just, like, maximizing win versus loss as opposed to risking draws in in hopes of, like, you know, maintaining a lead or something like that is just, like, a huge statistical crutch that you can use. as as, It's a statistical insight that you can use as a tactical crutch. I would say that. And I think perhaps, perhaps we've been doing that. But I, 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 what, what's your theory? I'm interested to hear this. I don't know what you're going to say. I mean, I think this is incredibly simple, right? A draw is one point, a loss is zero points, and a win is three points. So the difference between winning and drawing is bigger than the difference between drawing and losing. And therefore, when you're drawing, if you have an equal chance of both winning and losing, it makes a lot more sense to go for the win and risk the loss than it does to not go for the win and solidify a draw. Um, As for my theory, I mean, it might be a tactical thing that United play into, absolutely. Um, But basically, the results show, especially last season, that United were pretty much the bona fide third, I think, best team in the league when they were not losing matches. And they were 
incredibly bad when they were losing matches. And so I think it it's kind of like a converging game state thing where the longer the game was in a drawing state, the more likely United became to win it. But as soon as the game went to a losing state, they became a lot more likely to lose it. And so therefore, United just won or lost a lot of games compared to other teams that are either better in losing states or worse in winning states. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how the numbers pan out this season, but last season it was an absolutely massive difference in United's performances when they were losing. You could see it even if you didn't look at the XG, like when they were losing versus when they were not losing. Um, and it, you could also see it in the XG. So, Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. I, I, Does that, that make sense? Those are, those are facts. Makes perfect sense, yeah. And so moving into the next question, uh, JohnnyBoy47 um, do you have an opinion, good or bad, on the upcoming Ineos investment? Do you want to go first or do you want me to take this first? Yeah, my answer is short. I think it's possibly good. Possibly very good. I think it is, if you had to make me guess now, I would say it is going to have a mildly positive effect. Um, but I don't expect it to change everything. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not gonna pin my hopes on a 25% investment in control of the footballing side. I, I don't think there's. This is not like a complete revamp of the institution. It's a revamp of like specific parts of the footballing infrastructure, which like could make a huge difference, but it could also not. So I, I'm. I'm gonna say like if you asked it. I turned a short answer into a long answer now, but if zero is like, this is going to destroy the club and 10 is, this is going to bring it back to the peak. I'm at like a six. Yeah. Um, first thing I'm going to say, I, I'm not going to present like a geopolitical opinion on Ineos as like a company or like Qatar as like a sporting organization slash country and, um, and the Glazers as business people. Right. But from a footballing perspective, the, the fundamental idea behind this improvement in, in super simple terms is that many people believe, I think rightfully so, based on tons of evidence, that the Glazers run the club poorly and it shows in the club's performance on the pitch, not even just in terms of their financial allocation, but also in their actual use of the funds that are allocated towards the football. Um, it's clearly been suboptimal. The strategic aspects of United's operations over the last 20 years have not been there and when they have been there it was as the result of figures like sir alex ferguson who were kind of bridging together the issues for long enough that we didn't pay for the full extent of this dysfunction in the 2000s um, i also don't know to what extent i'm not a football finance guy i don't know to what extent the club is facing increasingly difficult debt to manage um, so i'm not commenting on that either but the fundamental idea is that the Glazers don't run the club well from a footballing operation standpoint, and that now someone else is coming in who might run it better. And I'm receptive to that idea. Um, I really wish the sport wasn't this way, such that people who are not football people whatsoever have such a huge governing over these historic organizations in the game, and their totally ability right. to not even just spend funds but be coherently run as a footballing organization um have reasonable like you know just across the board standard of operations in the footballing 
sphere does not feel important at Manchester United as a result of the people who have owned the club. Or I mean, whether you whether you think it's as a result of people who own the club or not directly, they're the ones who put the people in charge who it's it is being caused by. So yes, I think new owners could change that. I don't really have particular opinions on the people coming in, and it's not something I'm, I've been terribly interested in reading about until I actually get to see what they do. Um, and I kind of wish that this would not have to be the thing that saves United, a random change in something that has really more to do with the finances of the club than football operations. Yeah, agreed. Shall we go to no details? All right, no details. This is the segment where we allow you to ask anything, but with one caveat. The questions cannot be about football. Case has already picked a no details question, so here we go. I'm terrified. So uh, this one is from a friend of the pod, Alex Collings, um, and he asked, if you had to be an ocean critter that lived across the floor of the seabed, which one would you be? My lack of knowledge of marine biology is going to show in this segment. <laughs> I are there exa- like what like some kinds of like sea crabs? I uh, guess I can give you a lobster, for example. Um, uh, yeah, really, I think a lot of shellfish are are sea critters that crawl across the ocean floor. Um, beyond that, I think a sea slug, a mantis shrimp would be another example. Um, I'm trying to think of others. You know, actually, this is a fun fact about me. The high school I went to um, was marine biology focused. So I have uh, a really weirdly large volume of, of marine biology knowledge. Wait, did, um, were you? was that your like original career interest? No, that was just a side effect of some <laughs> other choices that we won't go into. Okay. Um. So, so no, no immediately apparent answer. Another fun fact about me, I'm allergic to shellfish. So this is actually a very difficult question. Um, so you went I think to a I high school pick, where the primary field of study was something that you're primarily allergic to. Exactly, exactly. Um, also, you live I'll in Boston. I do live in Boston. <laughs> That's not where I grew up. But, <laughs> but like, you live in the lobster roll capital of the United States of America. I do. It's a little tough. It's a little tough. But I don't typically swing for lobster rolls anyway. They're um, very expensive in Boston, in fairness. They're very expensive all over New England, um, which is the northeastern part of the United States, for those of you who don't know. Um, okay, I will say the mantis shrimp, which is actually one of the examples I gave you. Do you know anything about the mantis shrimp? The mantis shrimp is, like, one of the craziest organisms on Earth. Like, first of all, it has, like, nine color rods in its eyes, whereas we have three. So it can perceive, like, a whole spectrum of colors that we cannot perceive. Um, Also, it can move its limbs so quickly that it boils the water around it, and that's how it kills some of its prey. Um, And it can also strike with so much force that they can't be kept in aquariums because they'll break the glass and and escape. Um... And there's a whole other... They also are look really cool, so you should look one up. Um, yeah, they're just cool organisms. So that's my pick. Now you're on the spot. Uh, lobster. Because Lo- <laughs> I can't be consumed by humans that are allergic to shellfish. Oh, wow. This is all about immunity to me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, fair I enough. I don't know. Like, 
How did Alex even come up with this? Is this something they talked about? I don't know. It's fantastic. Episode I missed. Um, I've listened to their most recent podcast and I did not hear them talk about it, so I don't think so. Is that the one with the incredible title? Yes. Okay, I need to. Yes. I need to. I need to go listen to it. I swear, for like a full like forty eight hours, I was th- like, for reference, for those of you who don't know, the Pot Shot Pod, which is a podcast very similar to ours, except it's about Arsenal um, and has a more rotating cast. Recently, put out an episode, and the 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 title of it was uh, the assassination of Michael Arteta uh, of attacking the the assassination of attacking football by the by the coward Mikel Arteta, which is a play on on the title of another film, The Assassination of Jesse James by the uh, by the coward Robert Ford, which is just fantastic, fantastic all around, no notes, 10 out of 10. Um, but I was thinking about that for like 48 hours. Everything I encountered was like the assassination of <laughs> X by the coward Y. <laughs> but anyway. Who's Y officer, and why did your... they kill Twitter? So true. It's a horrible <laughs> pun. All right, let's call it. (laughs) Yeah, on that note, we better. All right, so other than that, we plan to be back regularly on Mondays. I hope that is actually the case this time. I'm very much committed to making it happen. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you so much for your continuing support considering our lack of uploads. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.